You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Miss, Miss Zoom. <laughs> there you go. Hi, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to see you all here, both, uh, as David said, in, in real life and, and virtually. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at the Desert Fathers tonight. And uh, Sitzer, who writes the book Water from a Deep Well, he labeled this chapter struggle. And I thought that uh, that was a interesting uh, title for a chapter, especially when we consider uh, what the last 19 months ha- have looked like for many of us. Because I, I don't think I would be uh, stretching anything to suggest that many of us have gone through uh, a lot of struggles uh, in the past 19 months throughout uh, this pandemic and potentially going forward. Uh, we've had uh, struggles, some of us, with, uh, with the insecurity of not knowing what the government restrictions are going to look like, seemingly sometimes day to day, let alone week to week or month to month. Uh, We've been having struggles with not being able to uh, have community with with the people close to us, our friends, our family. Some of us have had uh, struggles with uh, employment, um, either having a reduced uh, job load or in some cases uh, losing jobs completely. And some of us have struggled with uh, having lost people uh, who are close to us. And with the restrictions not even necessarily being able to be there for them um, in their time of need. And so we look at this and we can see uh, the struggles that are happening to ourselves. And so when we read verses like uh, Romans 5, 3 to 5, that says, We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we're encouraged even during our struggles because we know that God can and, and he does uh, work in our lives through our struggles. Through our sufferings, he refines us. He, he, uh, he sanctifies us. He makes us more like Jesus through our struggles. And the Desert Fathers realized this. They realized the importance of struggle in the Christian life, the importance of how we deal with our suffering and what that uh, would do for making us more mature in Christ. And they thought it was so important that when they looked at their lives, when they looked at the struggles that they were going through, they kind of kind of stroked their beards and said, you know, it's not enough. Not going through enough struggle. They would look at verses like 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 25 to 27, which says, <clears throat> everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like somebody running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will not myself be disqualified for the prize. 
And so the Desert Fathers looked at this and they said, okay, clearly uh, the society we're living in doesn't have enough struggle. And we'll look at this in a little bit. Uh, the Roman Empire came from paganism and moved to uh, Christian, uh, Christianity being preeminent. And so the Desert Fathers looked at this and said, this isn't working anymore. The martyrdom, that's not a thing anymore. Where am I going to find my struggles? So they made the struggles for themselves. And by and large, they removed themselves from society and they moved to the edges of the wilderness. So the Desert Fathers uh, looked at struggle and they saw that it was so important that they felt they needed to um, basically make more struggle in their lives. So they moved to the wilderness. They, they gave up everything they had and they lived in what were effectively impoverished conditions, effectively in the middle of nowhere, in the desert. So, Normally, we'd have a couple discussion times um, in, in these classes, but we're not going to do that, at least not now, maybe sometime in the future. Um, yeah, yeah, when COVID's over, we'll, we'll do some group discussions, but uh, um, I have a question here uh, that, that we'll just discuss as a whole. And if you guys want to type uh, some answers on your uh in the chat bar i'll read those out to the uh to the class and, and vice versa question or uh, ideas that you guys have i'll uh i'll say uh so that the people online can uh can understand but uh, the question i have is is it right to pursue struggle for the potential spiritual benefit to not be uh, content with the struggles that are already in our lives but to go even further to to push the bar as it were to um, maybe give up uh, even more than what we already have for the sake of potential spiritual benefit and if it is what does that look like any thoughts Fasting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fasting would definitely could could be one there. <laughs> the the struggles we face are already bad enough. <laughs> yeah, don't need to pile it on even more. Sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> And this is what the Desert Fathers thought. They thought they needed to pile it on more, willingly. Some of the things I was thinking about were um, um, becoming a missionary. I mean, clearly uh, there are situations where uh, becoming a missionary does mean giving up a good portion of, of what you have and going into what could potentially be uh, a dangerous area uh, for the sake of the gospel. Even some missions trips that I've heard of have been, have been more difficult than they intended to be. And so there are situations, I think, where we can see that people do put themselves in more difficult situations than necessarily uh, God might have put them in um, on their own. Yeah, it, it does sound like a form of, so, so one of the comments was, uh, it sounds like what the Desert Fathers are doing is a form of self-flagellation. So, so beating themselves, and that is one of the things that they did, and we'll get into that uh, in a little bit. So, 
before we get into um, uh, looking at the Desert Fathers as kind of a, as a movement and looking at some of their practices, I thought it might be helpful to look at one Desert Father in particular because uh, he actually is one of the most famous of the Desert Fathers, a guy named Anthony. And we know about Anthony's life because one of his, one of the people that he mentored is a guy named Athanasius. And Athanasius wrote uh, his biography, The Life of St. Anthony, and that was widely dispersed. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But Anthony was raised um, in a Christian household in Egypt. And he was born in 251. And when he hit his uh, late teenage years to early 20s, his parents died. And they left him um, in charge of the family estate. And his responsibilities were to himself, and he had a sister he needed to take care of. As I said, he was a Christian. He grew up a Christian, and so he routinely would go to church. And it was at church that he heard somebody preaching on um, Matthew 19, which is the uh, story of the rich young ruler. And... Uh, he felt the Holy Spirit convicting him when he heard this story, especially when it got to verse 21, and Jesus answered the rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And it struck him to the heart. And so right after, right after he, he went out, he sold most of his stuff, he kept enough to basically make sure that his, um, that his family, that his sister was taken care of, and he had just bare enough to live on. And even that wasn't enough, and he felt God again calling him to get rid of everything. And so he gave his sister over to the care of, of a group of young Christian virgins, which was probably kind of this prototypical nunnery, and once his sister had been taken care of, he sold everything he had, gave it all to the poor, and he moved to the edge of town, right on the edge of the wilderness. And he lived there, and some stories say he herded swine uh, for a job to make enough money just, just for himself to eat. But even there, he felt uh, unsettled, and he felt God continually calling him. So... He gave up that job and he moved out into the desert, into the wilderness, and he took up residence in a, an abandoned Roman fort. And he lived there for 20 years. And Athanasius uh, has a whole bunch of stories of, of St. Anthony during this time in the desert. And most of these stories revolve around him being tempted. And the stories are, are, are pretty, uh, pretty epic in how he, uh, how he brings them up, that he actually uh, spoke to the devil uh, face to face and that, and that the devil would tempt him uh, with, with lust by having images of beautiful women and would tempt him to try and go back to civilization and, and, and become wealthy and powerful again and tempt him to eat when he was fasting. And each time through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, Anthony was able to resist the devil. And in fact, in some cases, made the devil look like a buffoon. Made the devil uh, look like a buffoon. And so the devil got so desperate that he started physically attacking Anthony. He uh, either became or convinced some wild animals to attack Anthony. It's only through uh, the power of God that Anthony was able to survive. 
And 20 years go by, and uh, word of Anthony starts to spread uh, to the surrounding towns, to the surrounding uh, villages in the countryside. And people start uh, to get curious about this guy who lives out in the wilderness um, and, and seemingly is super holy and, and is blessed by God in a number of ways. And so people start to come out and, uh, and associate with, with Anthony, <laughs> initially to his chagrin because he really wanted to be alone. So people come wanting to be his, his uh, disciples, wanting him to mentor them in how to also live this kind of life. Uh, people would come out uh, to the desert for Anthony to pray over them. Um, he had the gift of healing, so some people came, came for healing. They wanted words of wisdom. And Anthony faithfully, uh, even though he didn't particularly want the people here, he faithfully ministered to them. But at some point, he felt God calling him away uh, even deeper into the desert. And so he picked up what little he owned, and he went deeper into the desert and people followed him and so he did it again and this is kind of the pattern for the rest of his life is that he would go out deeper into the desert people would follow him a little community would grow up around him and then he'd pick himself up and move even deeper and some of these uh, mini communities that coalesced in the desert ended up becoming monasteries in the future in his later life, uh, Anthony decided that uh, even the uh, very aesthetic, the very lean life he had chosen uh, wasn't enough. And so he started to wear a hair shirt uh, for what he believed were the spiritual benefits. And uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, um, when you would kill an animal and skin it, the skin is supposed to go on the inside uh, and, the, and the fur or the hair on the outside, when you reverse it, it becomes an incredibly uncomfortable garment to wear. And Anthony wore this uh, pretty much constantly, and the scratching was supposed to uh, create spiritual benefit in him as it, it helped him to focus on his prayers, helped him to focus on God. And he died at age 105. And people remarked throughout his whole life how healthy he looked, that this incredibly uh, austere lifestyle, he basically only ate uh, bread, salt, and he drank water. And that was it. That was his entire diet. Um, and yet he looked incredibly healthy, and so it was considered a miracle. And many, many people wanted to follow in his footsteps. Uh, to the point where near his death, Athanasius says that uh, the desert in Egypt was becoming like a city in and of itself. There were so many people uh, fleeing to the desert that uh, it had basically become its own city. <coughs> Athanasius writes the story of Anthony after he dies, and it becomes foundational, and um, David might uh, uh, touch on this when he does monasticism, because it was a foundational text for uh, for the, the rise of monasticism uh, in the church. That uh, people looked at St. Anthony and said that this is the kind of life I want to live, and so they would join a monastery in order to live as close to the life of St. Anthony as they could. So at this point, when we consider where we ended off last week, and we consider where the desert fathers are when they're fleeing to the, uh, fleeing to the desert, we see on one end of the scale, we see a church that's being persecuted, but it's vibrant. 
In 50 years, we see the church go from about 2% uh, in 250 AD of the Roman Empire to somewhere between 10 to 20%, around 300. And in some of the cities in the East, there were 50% Christians. So the Christian church in the uh, late third and early fourth century was vibrant. It was growing. And yet when we get to the end of the uh, fourth century, the beginning of the fifth century, we see these desert fathers who are start off their lives as part of the church, a church that is now legal within the Roman Empire, and they're fleeing. They're looking at the church around them. They're saying, this isn't feeding me spiritually. And so how did we get from where we left off last week to the Desert Fathers fleeing the church? So we're going to go through a little bit of history, and I do love history, but I'll still try and make it as quick as possible. And we start with what uh, in history is called the crisis of the third century. Uh, It starts in about 235 AD and it goes to 284, and basically it's the Roman Empire tearing itself to pieces. And we don't really understand how uh, terrifying that would have been to people because, quite frankly, even Canada hasn't been around nearly as long as the Roman Empire had at that time. The empire people thought was eternal. It had had been there for 500 plus years, first as the Republic, then as the empire. And the fact that now everything seemed to be ending was horrifying to the people, the vast majority of who were pagans. And so they looked at this, and uh, the, the reason why uh, it was tearing itself apart was twofold. One was the plagues that kept on happening, and the second was the civil wars. As soon as an emperor would uh, rise to power, a bunch of people would uh, gather armies and attack him. And it was to the point where basically no emperor in the third century died of natural causes. They were all murdered. And so you have this uh, horrifying collapse of society. And the pagans, especially the powerful ones, looked at this and said, why is this happening? We were so good for so long. We were so powerful for so long. What is happening? And the conclusion they came to was, well, obviously it's the Christians. So it's the Christians that are causing this. The gods have turned their back on us because we're allowing them to exist. And so we see in 250, uh, the empire-wide persecutions start. There were persecutions before this, but they were generally quite localized. In 250, Decius started started an empire-wide persecution, and uh, occasionally emperors would pick up the idea, this seems pretty good, let's just kill a bunch of Christians, and maybe the gods will be happy with us. And so we see 250, uh, the Decian persecution, 257 is the Valerian persecutions. In amongst that, I already mentioned, there's the plague. And the plague was huge for the growth of the church because uh, whereas you saw the important people, the powerful people flee the city, the, the pagan priests would flee the city when the plague hit, the Christians would by and large stay there, minister not only to their own uh, sick and dying, but to the sick and dying of the pagans. And this had a massive attractive uh, effect on the pagans. Many of them came uh, to faith in Jesus because of the uh, selfless acts of people during the plague. In 270 to 275, we have a guy named Aurelian come to the stage, and he, through a bunch of military victories, manages to start the stabilization of the Roman Empire. He manages to defeat all his enemies and bring back all the breakaway empires. And so the Roman Empire was more or less unified. 
But what's important is that he came up with this idea that there's one empire, there should be one faith. And all these other faiths, even the pantheon in the, in the Greco-Roman uh, paganism, that's not even such a good idea. We should focus on one God and worship that God. Everybody should worship that God. And if you're not willing to worship that God, then we'll kill you. He never got to enact his idea, but a guy that came about uh, 20 years later, Diocletian, did. Diocletian saw the Aurelian idea of one empire, one god, and he thought this seems like a good idea. And so he started the great persecution, um, the most intense persecution that the early church ever goes through. And it lasts for about uh, 10 to 12 years. And it's way more intense in the East than it is in the West. But no matter where you were, if you were a Christian, you were persecuted for your faith. And this pretty much uh, goes through Diocletian retiring. He's the only Roman Empire that ever retires, emperor that ever retires. And his successors are uh, four guys that end up fighting it out. And it ends up being a two-way fight between, for control of the Roman Empire between a guy named Maxentius and a guy named Constantine. And there's a battle, and it's one of the uh, uh, critical battles of uh, of history. It's called the uh, Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And uh, Eusebius, who's a historian, uh, comes later in the 4th and 5th centuries. He writes this about, about Constantine, that the night before the battle, Constantine had a vision. And he believed that God was telling him in this vision uh, to, to conquer under this sign. And the sign was uh, two Greek letters, the, the chi and the rho, which are the first two letters of Christos, certain I'm mangling my ancient Greek, but uh, Christ. It's the first two letters of Christ in Greek. And so Constantine has his men paint that on their shields and they win an epic victory. Maxentius is killed. Constantine is in charge. One of the first edicts he uh, declares is that Christianity is now to be treated as a legal religion. And so Christians are suddenly uh, euphoric no longer do they have to worry about being executed uh, on their way to church to, to have the uh, Roman legionnaires invade their church and drag everyone off to be crucified. Now they can worship in peace. So that happens in 313 uh, at the Edict of Milan. And what happens over the next 10 years is that Constantine starts to use uh, imperial funds which all used to go to pagan temples for building and upkeep of pagan temples. And some of those funds he starts to direct towards the church. So Christians can build churches. Uh, clergy can now draw a government salary. They don't need to necessarily be dependent on the money coming from the congregation. We start to see some problems here. We see more problems in 325. Now, the outcome of the Council of Nicaea that happens in 325, I think, was uh, ordained by God. The, the, the outcome was basically what we understand as, as Christianity today, especially revolving around the nature of Jesus being fully God and fully man. A whole bunch of people debated about this, and they came to the conclusion, and they, they came up with what we understand as the Nicene Creed, which pretty much most Christians today would agree, uh, agree with. However, the reasons for this uh, council, from Constantine's perspective, were one empire, one faith. So there's all these different ideas about who Jesus is. There's all these different kind of flavors of Christianity. We're going to get rid of all of them, except for the one you guys agree on. 
And so they debate for a number of months and occasionally Constantine would poke his head in. And at the end, as I said, I believe it's by the grace of God that this happens. They come up with the Nicene Christianity and Constantine says, great, everyone else is heretics and uh, is in danger of being executed. So, you know, that, that's fine. Uh, we'll just follow this stream of Christianity. But you see more and more uh, the politics of the empire and, uh, and the, ro the role of the church being merged. Constantine dies and his son Constantius takes the throne and he continues on the away from paganism and to Christianity. And he starts redirecting more and more funds away from pagan temples and to the church. And he starts restricting pagans. He stops pagans from being able to perform animal sacrifices. Reading being what? Postpone. There's a, a quick uh, regression when a guy named Julian the Apostate takes the throne. He desperately tries to bring paganism back, but it's way too late at that point. And he only lasts for two years and then he dies. And uh, after he dies, the, uh, the march of Christianity to taking over the empire continues. The second to last edict that kind of heralds the ascension of Christianity happens in 381 when Theodosius, who's the last emperor of the United Empire, he makes Christianity the state religion. So if you wanted to have a position of power, if you wanted to be a governor, if you wanted to be a tax collector, or anything else uh, revolving around the Roman government, now you needed to be a Christian. If you weren't a Christian before, you better convert right quick or you'll lose your job. And so you have this flood of important people coming into the church in a very short period of time. And you get everybody coming into the church in 391 when Theodosius, uh, who's at this point close to death, declares that paganism is now a capital crime. And so in less than 80 years, you go from executing people because they're Christians to executing people because they're pagans. And so it's this huge change, this, this massive change for not only the empire, but for the church. David talked last week about uh, the, the, the progress that, that new Christians would go through, that they would, they would join a church and they would have a mentor, and that mentor over the course of two to four years would, would go through life with them and teach them what it was like to be a Christian, uh, teach them the truths of the Bible, and when the mentor thought the person was ready, they, they would be prepared for baptism. They would go through their, um, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I do. And go through the whole creed and uh, say, Pisteo, I believe, I believe, I believe. And at the end, they would be baptized and they would be able to join in the full life of the church. Well, now you just get people flooding in through the doors and there's no way they can keep up this slow and cautious movement of people into the life of the church. You just have people bursting in through the doors because now this is the only spiritual game in town. And what you get is you get a bunch of powerful people coming in as well with money and influence saying, you know, I just, I just helped build half this church. Clearly I should be uh, involved in the leadership of it. Who are, who are we following again? What's his name? G G Jesus? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah. You know, last week I worshipped Mercury, this week I, I worshipped Jesus, it's all good, but I definitely need to be a leader in this church. And so you can see uh, the secularization of the church starting here, and the Desert Fathers certainly saw this. By the way, when I say Desert Fathers, there was also mothers there, so yeah, Desert Fathers and Mothers.
but they saw the secularization of the church. They saw the church starting to be indistinct from, uh, from the state. And they saw problems with that. With Christianity being the only path to wealth and power, the spiritual vitality of many of the congregations uh, started to wither, especially the congregations in major cities like Antioch or Rome or Constantinople. And so we have what uh, some authors call the Great Retreat. And we see... Uh, starting with a trickle and beginning, uh, ending with a flood of uh, wealthy and many times young people uh, becoming disillusioned with uh, what the spiritual uh, vitality was in, in the churches in the, in the city and leaving and moving to the wilderness. One of the big things was they, the lack of martyrdom now. When everyone's Christian, nobody's going to kill you for being Christian. And yet we can see through the second and third century, um, or the third and fourth century, early fourth century, how important martyrdom was to the growth of the church. And the Desert Fathers called this red martyrdom. So red martyrdom was no longer an option. And so they adopted what they called white martyrdom. It didn't involve dying physically, but it was dying to yourself. It was dying to the passions of the flesh. It was dying to the draws of material wealth. And so they packed up and they moved uh, into the desert. One of the uh, um, kind of uh, one of the verses that they used uh, to justify this was uh, um, in, found in Matthew 22. When Jesus says, uh, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to, the, and to God the things that are God's. And they believed that the two couldn't be merged. Thomas Merton has a great quote about this. He says that society was regarded as a shipwreck from which each had to swim for his life. To let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of society was a disaster. The Desert Fathers doubted that Christianity and politics... Christianity and the state uh, could ever be mixed to such an extent as to produce a fully Christian society. The only Christian society was spiritual. And so to be in a spiritual Christian society, you needed to leave the, uh, the secular society completely. And for them, that was moving into the desert. Predominantly, they moved into the Egyptian desert, but there were a lot of desert fathers that moved into the deserts of, of uh, Syria and Palestine. And as I said before, it was, it was dangerous. There, there were bandits out there. There were wild animals. There was the constant threat of, uh, of starvation, of, of thirst. It's hard to find water in the desert. And loneliness. Loneliness was a massive uh, problem that a lot of the desert fathers struggled with. But they ceased to be able to trust in themselves. And this was the important point for them. They ceased to be able to depend on their skills, on their wealth, or their influence. And they needed to depend on God alone. And so that was their reasoning for packing up and leaving what was becoming a friendlier and friendlier uh, society towards Christians and living in the desert. Now, when I, we're going to look at some of the common practices that they had. And I use the phrase common lightly because when you look at the lives of the Desert Fathers, there were some 
some had vastly different views of what this was supposed to look like. You, we went over the life of, uh, of St. Anthony. Um, his, his was pretty normal when you look at some of the lives of the Desert Fathers. You look at some guys like Simon Stylitis who uh, decided that God was calling him to uh, live on top of one of those uh, Greco-Roman columns that are made of stone that are about uh, 12 feet wide uh, and live there his entire life. And so he climbed to the top of the pole and people would occasionally bring him up food and water and that's where he lived. And that was his thing. This was his desert, was the top of that, uh, that top, top of that pillar. But there were some common uh, practices that we can look at. And so we'll look at some of these now. So the first one was what uh, um, a lot of people call liminal living. Liminal meaning um, in the boundary. So you had the Desert Fathers who believed they lived in the boundary between chaos and order, between uh, evil and good, between uh, the outside world and, and the civilized world. And they believed that they were called to that by God. And they believed that they were called to that because they look through the Bible and they see people like Abraham, when he was called Abram, uh, he was called out of Haran, and he was called to live basically in the wilderness. And so the Desert Fathers, they looked at this and they said, okay, Abraham was called to that. Clearly, I am being called to this as well. The move to the desert, the move to liminal living, was seen as a physical symbol of the ne necessary rejection of the world. I mean, we're called in scripture to, to reject the world, that, that loyalty towards the world means rejection of God and vice versa. And so they believed that the only way for them to show their total and complete loyalty to Christ was to leave and go into the desert. Sorry, somebody... Uh... I'm just looking at some of the comments here. Hmm? Oh, okay. The liminal point though is an interesting idea because the idea of liminal living is living on the edge. So for those online, what David said is that uh, liminal living is, is, Sarah Smith put it, living on the edge so that uh, your, your spiritual um, senses are always sharp, that you're not being dulled by, uh, by what the world would, um, would infect you with, ideas that the world would infect you with. Is that? Yeah. So they also believed that uh, living in the desert, they acted as, as intercessors. Um, and some of the stories of their intercession were, were quite, uh, the only word I can really think of is epic because you see them going into direct combat, spiritual combat with, with demons in some of these stories, uh, going up against uh, temptations, going up against the devil himself in Anthony's case. Um, and, and defeating him through the power of God. 
They, they believed themselves to be spiritual warriors, and the only way that they could keep their, their senses sharp was to live on the edge, was to live in the wilderness so that they wouldn't be distracted. We see uh, isolation being a major practice for pretty much all of the Desert Fathers. Uh, most of them lived as isolated a life as possible. We saw in the life of Anthony that he would move somewhere, people would show up and he'd stay for a while to make sure they're all taken care of, and then he would pack up and leave and go somewhere even more distant. And the more uh, famous of the Desert Fathers uh, usually had something like that happen to them, that they would move out into the desert, people would get to know them. That's, that's why we know about them now, is because they became famous in their time, and they would attract people around them, and you'd have these little communities um, um, popping up around the desert. And some realized that uh, they did have an obligation to these people, and that uh, packing up every time it got a little too crowded was maybe not such a good idea, that you had people looking for mentorship, looking for uh, spiritual wisdom, looking for, for prayer, and that maybe God was actually calling them to minister to these people, and so you get these proto-monastic communities that start popping up all over the place. A lot of the Desert Fathers, most of them in fact, practiced various forms of asceticism, and not only would they uh, fast uh, to the extreme, um, there's some stories of people fasting miraculously uh, from food and water for 40 days. And the 40 days without food is doable, the 40 days without water, and that's why they call it a miracle, is because that should have killed the person. And so you get this idea that, that um, removing oneself from even the temptation of food becomes an important spiritual uh, landmark that helps you grow in your walk with Jesus. We see them, uh, many of them do uh, vigils without sleep for two, three, four days at a time. We see Anthony wearing his hair shirt. Uh, that was not uncommon. Many, many of them uh, believe that the added discomfort uh, to their life was an important source of, uh, of spiritual growth. And you see some of them, uh, uh, what Laurie talked about before, called self-flagellation, self uh, basically beating themselves with rods or ropes, in some cases cutting themselves with knives to injure themselves, that they might even more depend on God. You see silent contemplation and prayer being a, an important part of the life of a desert father. Uh, the Greek word for it is a hesychasm, which means stillness and silence. And they would spend their time in silence and contemplation, and uh, usually within their cells. And uh, what they would do is they would repeat what is now known as the Jesus prayer, uh, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And they'd repeat that over and over again. And that would become part of the rhythm of the day. They would spend a portion of the time just repeating, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Son of God, have mercy on me. They would also spend some of their time um, um, praying through the Psalms or, or singing through the Psalms. 
they would uh, charity and poverty were a uh, major part as well of the uh, of the desert fathers and they looked at uh, Matthew 8 verse 20 where Jesus says uh, foxes have dens and birds of nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head and they saw that when he was crucified the only thing of note that Jesus owned was his was his robe that they uh, tossed dice for and so the desert fathers looked at this and said this is the example we should be following this is where we should be heading so giving away literally everything that we have every denarii of money that we have this is an important start to being a, a desert father but not only that they needed to continue in uh, a, a spirit of giving and a spirit of charity and so what most of the desert fathers did is they would develop a trade when they were in the desert and for many of them it was weaving baskets and mats out of reeds and they would sell these baskets and mats and with the little bit of money they they would get from that that's what they would use to buy the food that the little bit of food they needed to exist and they would give the rest of it away and the irony is that a lot of times the people who were being given money by the Desert Fathers uh, were actually better off than the, actual, than the Desert Father who was giving them the money. So these are some of the practices uh, that the Desert Fathers had, had in common, that, that, that most, if not all, of them practiced. So looking over this, in part because I've been talking for a while now, uh, so we'll do the same thing again. You, you guys speak out and I'll repeat it to the people online or you guys type it and I'll repeat it to the people out here. Uh, what are some of the positive things you see in the lifestyles of the Desert Fathers? And we'll start with that. What are some of the positive things you see in the lifestyle uh, of the Desert Fathers? Anyone? Simplicity. simplicity. Yeah, a move towards simplicity. Anyone else? Spending time speaking with the Lord? Yeah. Removing distractions. Yeah. Total devotion. Hmm? Sorry, I missed that. Dependence on the on a small community. Yeah. Very charitable. Yeah, charity was a huge thing. How about negatives? What were, what were some of the negatives that you can see in the, the description of uh, the Desert Fathers? The hair shirt. The hair shirt, yeah. <laughs> I am not missing that. The isolation doesn't sound very spiritual or healthy. The isolation doesn't sound spiritual or healthy. Yeah, the, the self-flagellation, the, the, in some cases self-mutilation. Yeah, this lifestyle could become an idol in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ma making your actions the center rather than realizing that God has done it all for us already. Yes. No, it wasn't evangelistic. The searching out of physical suffering. And I think the reason why it's important for us to do this 
to look at both the positives and the negatives is because whenever we go back into history, uh, it's easy for us to either uh, completely demonize a group of people or to look at them through rose-colored glasses. And it's good to have a balance. It's good to realize there were some positive spiritual things that the Desert Fathers did. And it's good to realize that that doesn't mean that all of us need to sell everything we have and move, where would be the nearest desert? Kelowna? Is that a desert? <laughs> move to a Soyuz, yeah. Move to the wilderness of a Soyuz, just outside all of the vineyards there. And so it's important for us to look at both the good and the bad. And uh, we're going to uh, look now mostly at the, at the good stuff. We're going to focus on some of the uh, positive spiritual things that uh, I believe that the Desert Fathers can teach us. And so the first thing uh, is that they realized that in struggle, they could only depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain them. Whether or not their, their struggle was, should have been imposed or not, uh, they were in the end, uh, at least they claimed, they were only depending on the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to sustain them. And regardless of what struggles we're going through, I think that all of us should be on board with that. When we go through a difficult time, whether it's uh, persecution from the outside or whether it's something more personal like uh, the loss of a job or the loss of a family member, uh, a sickness. Regardless of what we go through, uh, we need to lean on God uh, for help. When we start to rely on our own strength for, to get us through, that's when we fail. And it's so good that God has given us community to help sustain us in this, that one of the ways that uh, the Holy Spirit works to, to build us up in our times of struggle, to build us up in our times of suffering, is that he's given us the church. And that one of the jobs that we have is to help each other through these difficult times. Struggle is an aspect of our call to discipleship, and it is going to happen. Struggle is basically universal. Suffering is universal. It's going to happen to everybody at some time. And so we as Christians, uh, when I say in the notes we shouldn't run from it, we should embrace it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to avoid things like, I'm going to embrace my struggle with uh, whatever sickness I have. I'm not going to take any medicine. I'm not going there. But in the end, even if I'm taking medicine, it's God who heals me. And we contrast this with uh, the world around us and what the world around us looks, looks at um, in terms of pain and suffering. And that it's something to be avoided at all cost. It doesn't matter what it takes. If it removes suffering from you, it's all good. And we see, uh, I would say, almost the ultimate expression of this in, uh, in Canada, at least, in the medical assistance in dying that people are so petrified of, of pain and death that uh, they're willing to do whatever it takes, including ending their own lives. And I think that that's something that we as Christians need to be very wary of. It's something that uh, we need to interact with uh, wisely and winsomely, but when it comes to ourselves, we realize that one of the ways God's, God works in us is through suffering. 
The second uh, thing that I think the Desert Fathers realized that uh, it's pretty easy for us uh, to miss um, is how the culture around them both affected and infected them. And ultimately their response was to retreat from the world, which is not necessarily what we should be doing, but they realized the effect of the secularization of their culture and how bad it was. The empire had its fingers in every aspect of life for the people that lived under its, under its banner. And nothing changed really between uh, the empire under uh, paganism and the empire under Christianity. It still basically controlled everything. It's just that it did everything now under the auspices of, of the Christian church. And so it became harder and harder for the Desert Fathers to live what they considered to be a faithful life um, in opposition to the world when it looked like the world was walking in uh, through the doors of the church every Sunday. And so our response may not, to be, may not be to uh, uh, retreat universally, but we need to live counterculturally. We need to live our lives in such a way, um, living through the truth of Scripture, that uh, when it comes to some of the maxims that our society lays down is this is the way things should be, we say, no, this isn't, this isn't healthy spiritually. This isn't what we were made for. What we were made for. I think that was the motto of the Can. This is what we live for. It was the motto of the Canucks. Might still be the motto of the Canucks. And as much as I like hockey, that is not what I live for, especially since they keep failing. <laughs> Finally, we see the way that the, uh, um, some of the positive things that the Desert Fathers had in the disciplines that they practiced uh, throughout their day. And um, I didn't put this on the, uh, um, on the bibliography, but uh, some of the next uh, stuff, I drew it from Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. Uh, it's a good book about uh, Christian disciplines. And the Desert Fathers practiced most of them. Um, we don't have enough time to go through most of them. So I picked out three that I felt uh, they really practiced well and three that really kind of fly in the face of our society today. And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at those three, uh, three practices, those three uh, disciplines now. And the first one is uh, the discipline of solitude. And we see Jesus uh, in his ministry and in his life spend 40 days in solitude uh, in the wilderness before he inaugurates his ministry. And we see at least eight other times throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus retreat uh, to the wilderness uh, to be alone and to pray. And the last time he does that is in Gethsemane, when he separates himself from his disciples and he prays to God um, before he's crucified. And so the, the, the Desert Fathers, they took this um, as a maxim. This is how they needed to live their lives. Um, before God, but alone. And I don't necessarily think we need to go that far, but solitude 
is one half of the coin of Christian life, the other half being community. And when we have one and not the other, things start to become unbalanced. And I would say that the Desert Fathers became unbalanced toward the solitude aspect of things. I think we as a culture have become too unbalanced towards focusing on community. I think loneliness is terrifying to many people. And so just the desire to not be alone drives them, uh, drives people to, into relationships that they shouldn't be into, into friendships that are, that are damaging. Um, there were times when I was a bachelor, I'd just wander around the mall just because I wanted to hear the din of people. It drives us to crowds and to noise to distract from the crushing burden of being alone. And yet this is not solitude. I love this quote from uh, Ama Syncletica. There are many who live in the mountains and behave as if they were in the town. They're wasting their time. It's possible to be a solitary in one's mind while living in a crowd. And it's possible for one who is solitary to live in the crowd of his own thoughts. And so we see that solitude is not even necessarily going off on your own. It's, it's an attitude of, of quieting the din of life, of, of kind of mentally moving away from the crowd and focusing on God, meditating on him, worshiping him, praying to him, separating ourselves from the hustle and bustle of life and focusing on Jesus. So when we consider practicing solitude, um, there are some things that we need uh, to consider. I'm just going to take a quick drink here. The first one is that solitude, and I'll say this about silence next as well, it requires planning. Generally, times of solitude, uh, whether literally apart from people or, or just a mental solitude, um, rarely do they just happen by accident. Rather, uh, we need to structure into our lives time when we separate ourselves from others and focus on God. You don't necessarily need a special place to do it. You don't need to go to a retreat center necessarily to do it. You simply be, need to be able to remove yourself uh, from the world for the duration that you're practicing this. Foster uh, tells an interesting story about a family and their, their practice of solitude. They had a small room in their house and they put a chair there and that was known as their alone chair. And uh, when you went and you sat in that chair, the rest of the family knew that this, you're not to be disturbed until you leave the chair, that uh, this is your time uh, you're spending with God. You're, you're, you're doing your devotions, you're praying, um, you're meditating on the Lord, that uh, once they left the chair, then you could ask questions of your mother and stuff like that. But when she was sitting in the chair, leave her alone. And uh, I think Mark... Uh, Francisco uh, told a story about uh, a woman who, would, who had a shawl and she'd just put the shawl over her face. And the kids knew when mom had her shawl over her face, that was her prayer time. That was her time of solitude. Oh. Okay. So, we all need a fortress of solitude at times. <laughs> it worked for Superman, it works for us. Uh, 
So that's, uh, that's the first thing, that, that, that solitude requires uh, planning. Um, solitude doesn't necessarily require being alone. And Amas and Synclatica mentions this already, that uh, we can be in the crowd and, uh, and be in solitude before God, or we can be wandering alone uh, or sitting alone in our own house and be lost in the din of our thoughts. Um, being in the crowd of our thoughts. And so we need to uh, make sure when we're practicing solitude to adopt uh, a position of, of focusing on Jesus. And finally, and I'm going to say this with all three of the disciplines we're going to look at, uh, practicing solitude is a marathon, not a sprint. It uh, it's, takes a long time to develop uh, um, expertise in a skill. They say that it takes about 10,000 hours of practice before most people can be considered an expert in whatever they're practicing. And so when we practice spiritual disciplines, and it doesn't matter which one it is, uh, it's good to start small and then work incrementally larger. For practicing fasting, don't start with a three-week fast. Start with maybe a 12-hour. When we're practicing solitude, don't say, okay, so I'm going to pack everything up. I'm going to uh, head to um, uh, the Rivendell Retreat Center on, uh, what island is that? Bowen, Bowen Island, right. Uh, the Rivendell Retreat Center on Bowen Island. I'm going to spend a week there and I'm going to be completely alone. You, you need to work your way up to that. You need to strengthen that muscle of solitude. So we need to build our strength in the discipline incrementally. Always remembering that we're not doing this, we're not practicing this for the sake of the discipline itself, that uh, every time we practice this, it's to focus ourselves on Jesus, that our intent is always uh, to move closer to Christ, to become sanctified in him, to become more like him in, uh, in our character. The second discipline is, I got to say, this is the one I have the most uh, difficulty with, uh, is silence. And I have problems with silence just across the board. Um, you can ask my wife, you can ask anybody who's in my life group. Uh, when I ask a question, I wait about 10 seconds before I answer it myself. I just, there's something about silence that I find just difficult to handle. And so, in part, I put this discipline in here because I'm turning it back on myself. And it's not even just in, in audible silence. Uh, technology, I think, brings, uh, breaks silence. It, it brings noise into our lives, and it's not just uh, audible noise. It's visual noise as well. With a smartphone, it is easy to spend a day in complete solitude and yet never have a split second of silence. The background sound of our culture is noise, visual and, and, and audible noise. When I was a bachelor, I would sometimes come home and I would turn on the television and I wouldn't even watch TV, I'd just have it on in the background so that there would be some background noise so that I wouldn't be faced with the oppressive silence of being in my apartment alone. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. It's from letter 22, I believe. 
If you ever get a chance to uh, uh, listen to the screw tape letters done by John Cleese, it's spectacular. But uh, he says about noise, no square. So for those of you who don't know what screw tape letters is, it's a satirical book where, uh, by C.S. Lewis, where a senior demon is instructing a junior demon on how to best tempt a Christian uh, away from his faith. And uh, so in this point, he's talking about both music and silence. And he says, no square inch of hell, no square inch of infernal space, no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to silence, but all has been occupied by noise. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end, but I admit we are not yet loud enough. It's pretty chilling when uh, John Cleese does, uh, says this particular passage. But the idea that the background sound of hell is noise and that silence before God um, um, combats that. And it's not just kind of background noise that brought by technology. It's also uh, the, the silence combats our own speech. I talk way too much. Once again, you can ask my wife. We have whole conversations where I'm both sides of the conversation and she just sits there. And I'm convicted by verses like uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. I'm especially struck by the, uh, by the sacrifice of fools. And when I look back at my life, the number of times when I've spoken and I should have shut up, when I talked instead of listening. Because ultimately, when we consider silence as a discipline, it is the discipline of inclining our ears and listening to what God has to say to us through prayer, through scripture, and through, uh, in some cases, the people around us listening to what he is saying to us. That is uh, key to the, practicing the silence, uh, the discipline of silence. And I'm reminded of uh, the story of Elijah in uh, 1 Kings 19. Elijah's just had this great victory and he goes to uh, Mount Sinai and he finds a, a cleft in the rock or so, some translations say cave. And uh, there's, a, there's a fire, but God's not in the fire. And there's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And a great wind, God's not in the wind. And then there's a still small voice. And that's when Elijah realizes that God is speaking. And he comes to the, uh, the front of the cave and he covers his face. And, uh, and that's when God speaks to him. And so when we incline our ear to listen to God in silence, that's when we're able to hear the still small voice speaking to us through, through scripture and through prayer. So some things we need uh, to consider. Technology is the silence killer. And so when you're practicing silence, uh, remove as much of it from you as possible, all of it if possible. One thing um, that I found when practicing silence is that uh, it, it's sometimes hard uh, to quiet my mind. And one of the things that uh, routinely pops up in my mind is, 
I wonder how much time I have left until I'm done practicing silence. And so uh, Foster has had hit upon an idea, and he suggests what you should do is set an alarm, put the alarm in the next room. And then at least that's one thing that you can clear your mind if you're not thinking about how much time do I have left to practice this. Roz uh, came up with a good idea when we were discussing this class as well. And she said, what you should also do is have a pen and paper beside you. And so when kind of errant thoughts go through your head and you think, oh, if I, if I don't do something about this now, I'll forget it, you can write it down and then let that thought go and uh, continue to incline yourself towards listening to God. The second thing, when we talk about silence, there's a vast difference between the Christian understanding of practicing uh, the discipline of silence and uh, what I would say would be the practice of silence in some of the Eastern religions in, in the New Age movement. Uh, the practice of silence uh, in Christianity is uh, to clear our minds so that we can fill ourselves um, with God. We can fill ourselves uh, by thinking about scripture. We can fill ourselves uh, by praying, by listening to the Holy Spirit speak through us. We're not emptying ourselves. Eastern religions generally say what you want to do is when you're practicing silence, you empty your mind. You think about nothing. You just focus on the great nothingness in the world. Clear everything out. The problem with that is that our minds will never stay empty. And if we're not filling our minds with things of God, we will be filling our minds with other things, even if we think we're emptying them. The third thing uh, we need to remember is revolving around our speech. Way too often, I find myself responding rather than taking a step back and considering the words that I say. And I would say that this is in my speech both uh, person to person, but it's also in my speech digitally. It's in my speech uh, on Facebook. It's in my speech via texting, via emails. There are many times when I have uh, sent something and hit send far too quickly before I spent time considering, first of all, does this need to be said? And secondly, if it does need to be said, is it saying it in the most loving way possible? Am I being Jesus to this person when I say what I have to say? And what I've found is when I reflect on my life, there are so many times when I just should have shut up, when I should have said nothing, when silence was the, the thing that I should have done because that would have been me inclining to listen to the person. Or in some cases, um, it was me removing myself from the situation so that they could clearly hear God, that I was the noise that was drowning out God talking to them. And so we need to uh, develop a practice of listening more than talking. My mom said when I was six, there is a reason why God only gave you one mouth and two ears. It's so that you listen twice as much as you talk. It didn't take. Finally, practicing silence, once again, when we talk about disciplines, is a marathon, not a sprint. So when we start um, practicing silence, and a lot of times silence and solitude will go together. Uh, but when we practice inclining our ears to, to listen to God, when we practice not speaking, it's good to start, um, it's good to start small and work incrementally forward.
we're athletes and we're training. We don't start off running the 26-mile marathon immediately. We start with small increments. The final discipline that uh, we're going to look at tonight that the Desert Fathers practiced amazingly well is the discipline of simplicity. And simplicity is basically, when, when you want to kind of get a, a Cole's Notes a description of it, it's the deliberate act of reducing what we have, both through generously giving away um, what we have, but also reducing what we consume, both for the sake of focusing on Jesus and for the sake of, of our witness to the world around us. Scripture comments frequently on, uh, on economic issues and the idol that money can become. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. Uh, Paul says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And they're just two of many exhortations uh, that are in Scripture to be wary of the effect that the love of money, that materialism has on the people of the day and, and, and on us today. The problem isn't just money, though. It's also the stuff we accumulate. And I love uh, this quote by George MacDonald. Uh, when I trouble myself over a trifle, the loss of some little article, say, uh, spurring my memory and hunting the house, not from immediate need, but from dislike of loss. When a book has been borrowed of me and not returned, and I fret over the missing volume, and I, am I not a fool whenever loss troubles me more than recovery would gladden? Is it not time I lost a few things when I care about them so unreasonably? This losing of things is the mercy of God. It comes to teach us to let them go. This flies completely in opposition to the consumer culture that we live in. I generally don't recommend anything George Carlin has ever produced in his life, but there's one thing that he says that, and I even disagree with what he says there, but it's an insightful point. And uh, he's talking about the Ten Commandments and how basically they're all useless at this point. And he gets to, uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. And George Carlin looks at this and he says, well, this is the dumbest commandment of the bunch. This is what our economy is built on. Our economy is built on coveting. Coveting builds jobs. Don't get rid of coveting. You can toss that one right out. He is right about one thing, that there is a good portion of our economy that is built on coveting, that is built on seeing what your neighbor bought, that, you know, you have a 52-inch TV and he got a 60-inch TV. Well, the game just looks so much better on his. Why don't I get a 65-inch? Coveting things is so integral to our culture of consumerism, and yet it's so spiritually deadening. Love the uh, the saying that uh, when we look at what the consumer culture is, it's uh, buy we buy things we don't want uh, with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Yeah, and simplicity combats that. Simplicity uh, builds in us a generous heart when we practice it because it's 
when we practice simplicity, we force ourselves to give money and goods away. Simplicity prevents us from using our wealth to oppress people. It opens avenues for us uh, to use our wealth. And we live in the West and we, as a society, have a lot of wealth. And it helps us to use that wealth uh, to help the oppressed, uh, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and uh, in many other ways to work towards the furthering of God's kingdom. When we practice simplicity, it flies in the face of consumer culture. When we give things away, it flies in the face of you need to gather as much stuff as you can get. When we give away our money, when we're generous with our money, it flies in the face of, you know, you may not have enough to survive. So you need to make sure you get as much as you can. And no matter who you step on in order to climb the corporate ladder so you can get that bigger paycheck, that that's, you're, you're, you're looking at your own good first. Simplicity flies in the face of all that. And so it's a very important discipline for us to practice. And so uh, as we uh, start to wrap up here, um, some things to consider when we practice simplicity. I'll admit I never actually watched uh, Marie Kondo. Uh, apparently her, her thing was really, really big about, about simplifying your life. And um, from what I did read about her, she had some interesting uh, ideas that, that might be good first steps uh, to, to take in terms of living a life of simplicity. Well, when you look at your stuff, uh, get rid of anything that doesn't um, bring you happiness or, or bring you joy. The problem is, and I can look at this in my own life, there are definitely things in my life that bring me happiness that are probably idols that I need to get rid of. And so even if something gives us happiness, it may still be something that uh, we need to give away, that God is calling us to get rid of, uh, to be generous with and to give away, uh, because it's actually becoming an idol in our life. Foster brings this up in his chapter on simplicity. He says, strive to purchase goods for their usefulness uh, as opposed to status. And I'm sure we can all think of dozens of uh, different types of items that people buy for status. Houses, cars. For me, I, I work at IT up at SFU. And for me, my status uh, symbol, my status item is computers. And uh, I love it when I can get a computer that's just a tiny bit faster than, uh, than my coworkers. And it just, it runs that program a microsecond faster doesn't matter the fact that I will never actually see that microsecond. It happens so quickly, I can't even tell the difference in the two machines. It's, there's just this idea of uh, a faster computer, more powerful machine as a status item. And so I am convicted about that. We need, uh, t talking about technology, uh, we need to be careful about the amount of new technology we purchase these days. Uh, not only are most tech devices environmentally unfriendly, uh, not only are they built to break down in two to four years, pretty much every tech company has a policy called planned obsolescence. The idea is either the piece of technology will break down in two to four years, 
or the programs that it will run will be slow enough that it'll irritate you enough to buy something new. But not only that, but a lot of uh, the technology that we have today comes from China. And China is not known for uh, its uh, positive work environments, that uh, there's a lot of oppression that happens in the production of the electronic devices that we have. And so the idea of keeping a device around um, potentially until it breaks rather than to replace it uh, when it becomes irritating that it's slightly slower than it used to be. The fourth thing that we need to consider uh, when practicing simplicity and Foster writes uh, a huge chunk on this, and it's really good, uh, is to reject purchasing anything that breeds oppression of others. And this is difficult to see because we're at the very end of the production chain. We don't see what happens at, uh, at the very beginning where, where things are first being made, where the raw materials are being dug or grown. And yet oppression is baked into so many companies' supply chains. And uh, one that Roz and I felt uh, very convicted about and I'm still a little bit mourning about is chocolate. Uh, chocolate is a, uh, most chocolates that you get uh, have some um, oppressive practices baked into their, baked in, uh, into their uh, product, pun was not intended, um, baked into their production uh, chain that a lot of the people that grow uh, a cacao are, are oppressed. They basically live in surf-like surf conditions or, or, or in enslaved conditions. And not all companies um, do this. There are some companies that, uh, that, that have ethical chocolate, but it's really expensive. And so if you really, really like chocolate, like I do, then you're faced with what, what are your options? Either you cut chocolate out completely or you just go with ethical chocolate and it costs a lot. So, you know, goodbye chocolate pies. It's important for us uh, to do research uh, to figure out um, how our consumption of, of clothing, there are many clothing um, companies that still have sweatshops around, uh, food, talked about chocolate already, and tech, uh, how they contribute to the oppression of people. And I do think that we as Christians, we should be applying our faith to how we consume. And so that may require us to change our consumption habits. It may require us to change what we eat, change how often we um, buy new tech, keep our clothes longer. And finally, practicing simplicity, once again, marathon, not a sprint. Moving tomorrow to completely oppression-free purchasing habits, that might not be difficult, but what we could do, and I'll, I'll look at this uh, uh, when we go th quickly through the reflections, that uh, one thing we could do is maybe pick one area and start doing research on it and start in there with the idea that it will eventually spread to all our areas of consumption. So there's a few things for us uh, to reflect upon as, as we come to a close here. Um, the first one is, 
it's important we always keep scripture at the at the forefront here and luke 4 1 to 13 that's jesus going into the wilderness being alone being silent before god and his his temptation uh, from the devil the second thing we should reflect upon especially when we look at the lives of the desert fathers and their focus on struggle and on suffering is to look at our own lives and see the areas where God has built us up through our struggles, built us up through our suffering. Seeing where in, our te- in the testimony of our lives that he has used suffering and struggle to shape us. And it's important for us to remember this. It's important uh, when we consider uh, spending time in solitude uh, or silence to, uh, as we said, kind of more plan it than just hope it happens, um, happens by accident. Um, when we reflect over this, we, as I said, maybe pick one area and focus on your consumption habits in that area and then look at how you can um, consume more ethically in that area. And then from there, uh, spread that practice to other areas uh, in our consumption. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.